morning, everybody. My name is Brian. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship, and I'm so glad to be here this morning to open the Word together with all of you. Let's start, have an uh, imagination picture for you. Imagine you're looking to buy a house. So you go to the real estate listings, and you see two listings, two different houses. They're in the same city, just different parts of town. Here's, here's the first one. It says, charming three-bedroom, two-bath house. <clears throat> Filled with warm natural light 24-7. Gardens outside are in perpetual bloom. Water supplied by a pristine spring. Friendly, generous neighbors. That sounds good, right? Then you look at the other listing. The other house. Dilapidated. Three bedroom, two bath. No windows. Doors are reinforced steel. For security, it's not a good neighborhood. <clears throat> Nothing grows in the garden, but lots of mold is growing in the house. <laughs> Includes first year's supply of air fresheners to keep out the smell of decay. <clears throat> the text we're looking at today uses a picture like this. Obviously, these are exaggerated pictures. You would never see these actual real estate listings. <clears throat> especially the second one. No agent would try to sell a house that way. Um, but in the text we're going to look at today, the image is used of two different places to live. And those two different places to live are life and death. There's actually the idea of abiding in life or abiding in death. And it's a big difference, a big difference. Before we get into today's text, which is First John Uh, the end of chapter 3, so you can go ahead and turn there. It's on page 661 if you're using the church Bible. Before we uh, jump into that text, let's review where we've been. It'll just be helpful to set a little bit of context. 1 John is a letter written by John the Apostle. John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, one of the men who traveled around with Jesus and heard his preaching. In fact, John was one of Jesus' closest disciples associates, one of the three that Jesus invested the most time in. So we're, we're hearing words from man who was with Jesus and close to Jesus. John was responding some teachers who at that time were disputing the teaching that Jesus had given, Jesus and the apostles as well. They had said that some of the things that the apostles were teaching were wrong. And in particular, we've been seeing how John has wanted his readers to be able to recognize the marks of a true Christian. Because what John was saying is that there are some people out there who say that they're Christians or that they follow Christ, but who are espousing things or doing things that showed that they really weren't Christians, that they were just fakers. John wants his readers to understand the difference. Last week, we talked about being a child of God. And how being a child of God is completely incompatible with a practice of sinning, of sin pervading in somebody's life. This week, we're going to look at another way to distinguish genuine Christians from those fakers. And that is love. Love for each other distinguishes true Christians from those who are not true. So with that, let's read the first part of our text, which is 1 John 3, verses 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 
We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You've got two sections on your outline. The first of those is what I've called two camps, or it's the same idea. There's two places to live, two groups of people, and we're going to take a look at what those two are. Verse 10, uh, which was in the section we read last week, leads into our, our text for this week. So let's take a look back at that because it sets the stage and gives us our topic. In that verse, it says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Telling the difference. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. How many of you have ever done any editing of photos, even in simple editing like on your iPhone or Instagram or anything like that? You ever notice sometimes in some programs there's a contrast adjustment. You can grab the slider and turn it up or down and increase contrast. What that does is it takes the light parts of the picture and makes them lighter and the dark parts and makes them darker. And when you do that, you end up with a more of a punch in your image. It makes a more, uh, it makes more of an impression. It also means there's less shades of gray in the middle. If you take it to the extreme, it's either white or black, nothing in between. John is doing something like this in this text. He is drawing a strong contrast. He's saying that everyone falls into one of two camps. Either you're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. And if you were here last week, remember we talked about it. We asked the question, who's your daddy? And wondering... Uh, which person you were really a child of. In a similar way, he is asking the, he's saying that there are two places to live, two camps. And those places correspond, on the one hand, to love, or it's opposite, to hatred. <clears throat> and he helps us out by giving us a concrete example, by, uh, the man Cain. <clears throat> I'm just going to go ahead and read Cain's story because it's not very long. This is all the way back almost at the beginning of the Bible. If you're using the church Bible, it's on page 2. This is Cain's story. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, his brother, also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. 
And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So we have this, this emblem of hate in this man, Cain. We're going we're gonna to consider what Cain did and how it uh, shows what hatred is as opposed to love. Hatred is something that these days, as I thought about it, we tend to think of as uh, more of an idea, perhaps. At least a lot of the time, if you think about where it's in the news anyway, we talk about legislation about hate crimes, and we kind of think of hatred as an identity-based thing. Like hatred is despising somebody for who they are, perhaps their, their race or their religion or something like that. And that absolutely is hatred, but, but it's a narrow definition of hatred. There's a lot more to it than that. <clears throat> I want to try to bring it more into our experience instead of keeping it as this nice, safe idea that's out there that other people do. <clears throat> Another place that hatred comes into our experience is in the case of when we are sinned against. When someone wrongs us, when someone sins against us, that's, a, that's the time that can provoke hatred in our hearts. It's, uh, and that, that's an experience that, that's very difficult. Um, but I want to try to bring the discussion even closer to our experience because that might characterize some, some events in our lives, but uh, let's try to get close to home and, and more like everyday experience because the reality is that hatred has a lot to do with Simple, the simple times when people get in the way of our priorities. <clears throat> and we usually don't use the word hatred. We use a word that is upstream of hatred, if you will. We, we talk about things that eventually grow into hatred. We talk about being annoyed. That somebody's doing something that, that's slightly annoying to us. We say things like, Oh, if, if this person would just stop bothering me, I'd get so much more done. <clears throat> or, uh, man, I, I can't believe what that guy said about me. We wouldn't label those things hatred. We wouldn't consider it in the same category as Cain murdering his brother. But what we know from the scriptures, for instance, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said that... Um, Indeed, you've heard it's wrong to murder, but I say, if you have been angry with your brother, you have committed the same sin that is murder. We know that we can't make very clean separations between these gross sins like Cain and really wicked people do and, and where our hearts can live every day. <clears throat> the truth is that annoyance grows into anger, which grows into hatred which grows into murder. It is a natural progression from the one extreme to the other. <clears throat> Those things are triggered when our accomplishments are frustrated. This is perhaps an experience that you who are parents are very accustomed to. You see it in small ways, when it's with young children especially, who, who just sometimes, because they like being with you, they... They keep you from getting things done that you want to do. <clears throat> it comes when people say things that, that harm our reputations. 
These things can spark in us a frustration of our interests or of our priorities. The thing that I want, this person is keeping me from getting it. At at its core, we want to recognize that hatred is driven by self-interest. That when we are focused on our priorities, what we want, what we think should happen, and other people get in the way, that's hatred. That's when it happens. It's driven by self-interest. Furthermore, another thing that John is saying here is that hatred gives evidence of spiritual death. These are the places that we can abide in, the places living in love or living in hatred. And the place of hatred is death. He says it in verse 14, whoever does not love abides in death. The reason that's true, the reason that loving others is life and failure to love others is death is because we were made to love others. That's what we were made for. We were made to love others. We were made most of all to love God. That was an element in that first story with Cain and Abel. What was it that the tension was over? It was about the worship of God and that in his worship of God, Abel was accepted and Cain wasn't. That made Cain angry and it drove him to hatred. We were made to worship God and worshiping anything else leaves us unfulfilled. There's nothing else we can put our hope in that will leave us at a place of satisfaction. Worshiping anything else leads us unfulfilled. It also leads us into sin. That's a big thing that we talked about last week when we talked about patterns of sin in our lives. That worshiping things other than God makes us make choices that don't fit what we were designed for. It leads us into sin. It leads us to sin against our brothers and sisters when they get in our way. It leads us to make choices that that are wrong. We've seen it. He said it already. Uh, We've noted already how he said it in verse 14. Whoever does not love abides in death. That's how high the stakes are. Hatred leads to death. But thankfully, Cain is not the only example that we have. Cain, though he is representative of mankind, is not the final representative of mankind. So we turn our attention to Christ, the foundation of love. In our text, John turned his attention to Christ in verse 16. And verse 16 is really the pivot point in this text. It's the hinge that everything else swings on. Let's look at that again. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. First, The first part of that sentence, by this we know love. It's Christ's love and Christ's life for us is what introduces love into the darkness of our lives that we would know otherwise. Without, without what Jesus did, without Christ, we wouldn't have any way to know real love. It would be beyond us, beyond our grasp. We would live the life that Cain lived, forever a wanderer, forever not being accepted, forever fearing death. 
That would be the picture of our lives without this love that Jesus has made known to us. This is how love burst into our world of hate through Jesus in his life. And you noted perhaps how John pointed out to his readers that they should understand that the world is going to hate them because of their love. And if the world hate will hate us, we know that because the world hated Jesus. <clears throat> the world hated Jesus because his agenda didn't match up with theirs. His, his life and his ministry did not match up with the world's agenda for what a Messiah should be. The world hated Jesus because he didn't look the part of a savior. He was born in a stable. He was, he grew up in a nowhere town. He wasn't from the important places. He didn't look like a savior. The world hated him for that. Even more, the world hated Jesus because he exemplified God's holiness and showed everybody else that they didn't measure up, including critically the people who were most, who most passionately believed that they did measure up. The world hated Jesus so much that the very people he came to save went to their pagan governor and demanded that he be put to death. And they celebrated when he was nailed to the cross. And you know what the most amazing thing is? The most amazing thing is that Jesus knew this hatred. He knew it was coming. He knew what he was stepping into. And he did it for us. That's why he came. It's because of that hatred. And he knew that if he didn't take it, if he didn't take it on himself on the cross, then we would be utterly destroyed by it. That was our destiny. In contrast to hatred that's driven by self-interest, Jesus' love was driven by self-sacrifice. His love was self-sacrifice. And John notes this. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And then immediately after that is, is the implication. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. <clears throat> this is the imperative that's given to us. This is the way we apply it. And it's critical to note the order. We can love others because Jesus has loved us. We should love others because Jesus has loved us. It's just like the parable that Jesus told. Perhaps you remember the parable usually called the parable of the unforgiving servant. Remember that one where uh, Jesus told the story of a man who owed an infathomable debt, 10,000 talents, more than anyone could pay back in a hundred lifetimes. And, uh, but the man goes to the king to whom he owed the debt and pleads for mercy. And because of his pleas, the king has mercy and forgives the debt. And then the man turns and goes and finds a fellow servant who owed him a debt. 
not a trivial debt. It was, it was an amount of money that would have been meaningful, but it was absolutely nothing compared to 10,000 talents. And this man, instead of being forgiving as his master had been, demanded the debt be paid. And when the king heard of it, um, he uh, brought down the full punishment on the, on the servant for what he owed. <clears throat> Just like that, we have a similar story in this case. Because God has loved us, we ought to love others. Because we have been blessed in this incredible way by God's love for us, undeserved, unfavored love, that we can turn around and love others. John challenges us to this in verses 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The imperative is given us here in verse 18, where he says, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. This is a command. He's saying, let's do it. It's a first-person command, and he includes himself in it, saying, let us not love. And what this is, as you see, is a warning against the H word. It's a warning against hypocrisy. There's a reason why Christians over the years have been have received that charge of hypocrisy. Why for a lot of people outside the church, um, maybe for some of you, it's been a central stumbling block to your to your believing Jesus message that people who say they believe it don't act like it. There's nothing different between those who who say they're Christians and those who don't. This is the warning. This is what John is warning against, saying, let's, don't, let's not just talk about it. Let's do it. And we do it because God has loved us. So let's get practical. <clears throat> what are some ways that we tend to love in word, but not in deed or in truth? I thought of just a couple simple ones that, uh, that are just ways we talk. Saying we're going to pray for each other without actually praying for each other is a way to love in word, but not in deed. Sometimes it's even a way of keeping people at arm's length. It's a way you can end a conversation with someone who's sharing about something hard. So if you say you're going to pray for somebody, make sure you pray for them. And a great way to do it is to do it right then, right as you're talking about it. Why wait until later? <clears throat> another, another just very practical way in our own lives, just starting at our very own experience every day. Um, sometimes people are going through things that are hard, uh, either suffering or just, just times in life that are a little harder. The kind of thing, the kind of experience that would make you say, let me know if you need anything. Well, that, that may be very well motivated. We can go further instead of just loving in word. Uh, instead of saying, let me know if you need anything, which is only kind of half of an invitation. <clears throat> just go ahead and do something for them. If they tell you to stop doing it, stop doing it. <laughs> but until then, if you see something that would help them, just do it. <clears throat> Those are just a couple of simple ways that we can make sure to love in deed and in truth instead of just in word.
going a little bit bigger picture. The question that's put before us is this. And this is in line with what we've read in previous weeks about these tests that John is giving to help people discern if they are truly Christians or not. The question from this text that you would ask yourself is, where do you live? Do you abide in life or in death? Or in other words, is your life characterized by love for others? Or is there a root of hatred that drives your life? This is the question that John gives us to ask. And that's the a summary, or that, that covers our first section there of two camps. The first camp of life, which is characterized by love, love that's given to us from God. That's how we know love. The other camp is death, driven by hatred. You are in either one or the other. There's no third camp. There's no other option. This leads into our second section, which I've called Uncondemned. Do these tests or these questions leave you feeling uncertain? Do they leave you feeling some doubts about where you stand before God? One of the things I just love about God's character is how he gives us help for those just human moments when we experience doubt. And this next part of the text is one of those. So let's read the rest of the chapter. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. If you are in a place or you have been in a place where you feel this doubt, this uncertainty before God, or as John said it, if your heart condemns you, consider this. Consider what verse 20 says. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. What this is saying is that what God says is a more reliable source of information about truth than what we feel or what we think. That's what God is greater than our heart means. It means that what God says is true. What our heart feels or thinks might be true insofar as it's the same as what God says. So if your heart is condemning you, remember there's lots of reasons your heart might condemn you. Your heart might be condemning you because you are having a bad day and are just in kind of a bad pattern of thinking or feeling. Your heart might condemn you because the devil is making accusations against you and you're struggling in believing the truth. There's lots of reasons our hearts condemn us. But what John wants us to have is confidence before the Lord. And he gives us that confidence. He wants us to have that confidence by considering the truth. We've already been talking about how we know this truth. 
that the this test that's given us is do we love the brothers because remember what we were saying about two places of living there if if there's love you know that you're not in death if you abide in death there's only hatred if you abide in love then it displays itself in love for the brothers in the same way last week we talked about how being a child of god is absolutely incompatible with a practice of sinning it's also incompatible with hatred expressed on that same level a pattern or practice of hatred so if as you look at your life and you ask god to guide you in looking at that you you trust christ you claim belief in christ and you see a pattern not of hatred but of love you can have confidence that's what god is saying here you can have confidence before the lord because it's not about how well we love it's about how well jesus has loved us and so we can be confident in that as we sang to the lord what you complete is completely done if on the other hand as you do honestly consider where you are if you don't claim belief in christ as was mentioned here in the text that the command is to believe in the name of his son jesus christ if you're not to that point yet Maybe this is the time for you to take that step. Maybe this is God calling you to faith in him, calling you to life and not to death. If that's the case for you, talk to somebody about it. Talk to a friend here. Talk to any of the leaders here, to myself or the other leaders here at Grace Fellowship. We would love to talk with you about that. We invite you to put your faith in Christ. <clears throat> One final thing about this confidence. Besides, it's good. We all enjoy feeling confident rather than doubtful. On the face of it, we know that. But there's something else that's good about this confidence. Having confidence that we stand before God forgiven and loved actually reinforces our love for other people. Think about it. We talked about how the core of love is self-sacrifice. That was the core of Jesus' love for us, was his coming and dying for us. And it's the core of our love for other people too. It's putting the interests of others ahead of our own. But you can't put others' interests ahead of your own unless you are confident that someone else is looking out for your interests. And that is the promise that we have from the Lord. And when we are confident before the Lord that he loves us and that he is looking out for our interests, we are free. We are free from the burden of protecting our turf, protecting our, reg- our, um, our reputation. We're free from that burden, free to love others sacrificially, to let others get the credit for things that we helped with, to give in ways that actually mean we have to go without some things so that others can, can, are freed from going without. When we're confident in God's love, we're free to do those things, knowing that we're not missing out on anything. What we have in Christ is far better than anything that we can even offer and share uh, with others in the way of, of help or anything like that. So in conclusion, I'll conclude with the question, where are you living? Are you living 
in death? Is your experience of hatred? Or it's more minor forms that we talked about, the annoyance, life that is constant frustration? Or are you living in life? Life in Christ that despite the frustration that still exists in life, abounds in joy and abounds in hope at what God is doing. As we, as we continue to worship God, let us live in that life. Let's pray, and then we'll sing together again. God, thank you for loving us so freely. Thank you for coming when we were locked in the darkness of hatred and had no hope of rescue but for you. Thank you for not clinging to your own interest, but um, for our sake and for your glory, you came to love and rescue us. Help us, Lord, to know your love. Help us to turn to you instead of trusting ourselves. Help us to love others the way that you've loved us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Brian.